Kia ora. This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Beloved listeners, welcome to today's radio program. I'm Kadlote Konomu and I'm very happy to be back with you to present the New Zealand Greek Metropolis's Christian Orthodox Radio program on Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM. This is with the blessing of our Archbishop Gerios Gerios Meron. We hope you'll find today's program both interesting and spiritually enlightening with its mix of readings and explanations from the Holy Gospel, readings from spiritual books, some discussion on the lives of the saints, hymns and notices. Now for a few words of introduction in Greek. Αγαπητοί ακροατές, χαίρετε. Σας ευχαριστούμε που είστε συντονισμένοι μαζί μας για ακόμη μία φορά στην εκπομπή της Ρεάς Μητροπόλεως Νέας Ιλλανδίας στο Wellington's Access Radio 106,1 FM. Αυτό γίνεται με την ευλογία του Μητροπολίτου μας κύριος κύριος Μύρονας. Ελπίζουμε να σας έχουμε μαζί μας καθόλου την διάρκεια της εκπομπής μας, από την οποία εύχομαι όλοι μας να οφειλεθούμε πνευματικά. Και τώρα ας ξεκινήσουμε το πρόγραμμά μας με την προσευχή Βασιλεύ Ουράνιε. Βασιλεύ Ουράνιε, παράκλητε το πνεύμα της αληθείας, ο πανταχού παρών και τα πάντα πληρών, ο θησαυρός των αγαθών και ζωής χορηγός. Ελθέ και σκήνωσον εν ημίν, και καθάρισον ημάς από πάση σκυλίδος, και σώσον αγαθέτας ψυχάς ημών. O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from all impurities, and save our souls, O Gracious One. Let's spend some time now talking about important church events as well as the lives of some of the church's athletes whom we commemorate either today or will do so during the week to come. Today is the Sunday after Christ's Nativity and we will hear about this later in the program from Father Pavlos. I will speak about Christ's circumcision and the feast day of St. Basil the Great, Archbishop of Gessaria, both of which we will celebrate, God willing, on the 1st of January. 
As we've said previously, the reason we read and talk about our saints is so that we learn from them and apply these learnings to our everyday lives, essentially to give us the courage and strength to face all our trials and tribulations with faith, patience and love. Uh, Before we start speaking about the circumcision of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, I'd just like to wish everyone many years um, following the celebration of Christ's birth yesterday. Let's start out with the circumcision of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. On the eighth day after his nativity, our Lord Jesus Christ was circumcised in accordance with the Old Testament law. All male infants underwent circumcision as a sign of God's covenant with the holy forefather Abraham and his descendants. After this ritual, the divine infant was given the name Jesus, as the archangel Gabriel declared on the day of the Annunciation to the most holy Theodokos. The fathers of the church explained that the Lord, the creator of the law, underwent circumcision in order to give people an example of how faithfully the divine ordinances ought to be fulfilled. The Lord was circumcised so that later no one would doubt that he had truly assumed human flesh and that his incarnation was not merely an illusion as certain heretics had taught. In the New Testament, the ritual of circumcision gave way to the mystery of baptism, which it prefigured. In addition to circumcision, which the Lord accepted as a sign of God's covenant with mankind, he also received the name Jesus, meaning Saviour, on the eighth day after his nativity as an indication of his service, the work of the salvation of the world. These two events, the Lord's circumcision and his naming, remind Christians that they have entered into a new covenant with God and are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Let's now speak about St. Basil the Great, Archbishop of Caesarea. 
Saint Basil was born in the year 330 at Gesaria, the administrative centre of Cappadocia. He came from a renowned family famed for its eminence and wealth and zeal for the Christian faith. The saint's grandfather and grandmother on his father's side had to hide in the forests of Pontius for seven years during the persecution under Diocletian. Saint Basil's mother, Saint Emilia, was the daughter of a martyr and Saint Basil's father, also named Basil, was a lawyer and renowned speaker. Together they had ten children, five sons and five daughters. Five of their children were later numbered among the saints. Saint Basil the Great, Saint Macrina, who was an exemplar of ascetic life and exerted strong influence on the life and character of her brother Saint Basil, Saint Gregory, who became Bishop of Nessa, Saint Peter, Bishop of Sevaste, and Saint Theosavia, a deaconess. Saint Basil spent the first years of his life on an estate belonging to his parents at the River Iris, where he was raised under the supervision of his mother and grandmother. He received his initial education under the supervision of his father and then studied under the finest teachers in Gasaria, and it was here that he made the acquaintance of Saint Gregory the Theologian. Later, he transferred to a school at Constantinople where he listened to eminent orators and philosophers. To complete his education, he went to Athens to the centre of classical enlightenment. After a four- or five-year stay at Athens, he had mastered all the available subjects. He studied everything thoroughly and was a philosopher, philologist, orator, jurist, naturalist, as well as having a deep understanding of astronomy, mathematics and medicine. Whilst in Athens, he developed a close friendship with Gregory the Theologian, which continued throughout their life. In fact, they regarded themselves as one soul and two bodies. Around the year 357, St. Basil returned to Gesaria, where for a while he devoted himself to speech-making, but soon tired of that and instead entered the path of an ascetic life. After the death of her husband, St. Basil's mother, her eldest daughter Macarena and several female servants withdrew to the family estate and there they began to lead an ascetic life. St. Basil was baptised by the Bishop of Gesaria and was tonsured a reader whereby he first read the Holy Scriptures to the people, then explained them. Later on, wishing to acquire a guide to the knowledge of truth, the saint undertook a journey to Egypt, Syria and Palestine to meet the great Christian ascetics living there. On returning to Cappadocia, he decided to do as they did. He distributed his wealth to the poor, then settled on the opposite side of the river, not far from his mother and sister, gathering around him monks living a cenobitic life. Soon his good friend Gregory the Theologian went to the monastery and together they laboured in strict abstinence in their dwelling place, which had no roof or fireplace, and their food was very humble. They themselves cleared away the stones, planted and watered the trees, and carried heavy loads. Their hands were constantly callous from the hard work. 
For clothing, St. Basil had only a tunic and monastic mantle. He wore a hair shirt, but only at night, so that it would not be obvious. In their solitude, Saints Basil and Gregory occupied themselves in an intense study of Holy Scripture. They were guided by the writings of the fathers and commentators of the past, especially the good writings of Origen. From all these works they compiled an anthology called Philokalia. Also at this time, at the request of the monks, St. Basil wrote down a collection of rules for virtuous life. By his preaching and by his example, St. Basil assisted in the spiritual perfection of Christians in Cappadocia and Pontus, and many turned to him. Monasteries were organized for men and for women, in which places St. Basil sought to combine the cenobitic kinivios, or common lifestyle, with that of the solitary hermit. During the reign of Constantius, the heretical teachings of Arius were spreading, and the church summoned both its saints into service. St. Basil returned to Caesarea and in the year 362 was ordained deacon and then two years later was ordained a priest by Bishop Evsavios of Caesarea. But seeing, as Gregory the theologian relates, that everyone exceedingly praised and honoured Basil for his wisdom and reverence, Evsavius, through human weakness, succumbed to jealousy of him and began to show dislike for him. The monks rose up in defence of St. Basil, but to avoid causing a conflict in the church, St. Basil withdrew to his own monastery. With the coming to power of Emperor Valens, a time of troubles began for orthodoxy, and St. Basil quickly returned to Caesarea at the request of Bishop Evsavios. In the words of Gregory the theologian, he was for Bishop Evsavios a good adviser, a righteous representative, an expounder of the word of God, a staff for the aged, a faithful support in internal matters, and an activist in external matters. From this time, church governance passed over to St. Basil, and he preached daily, and often twice, in the morning and in the evening. During this time, St. Basil composed his liturgy. He wrote a work on the six days of creation, another on the prophet Isaiah, another on the Psalms, and a second compilation of monastic rules. He also wrote three books against Evnomios, who was an Arian teacher. St. Gregory the Theologian, speaking about St. Basil the Great during this period points to the caring for the destitute and the taking in of strangers, the supervision of virgins, written and unwritten monastic rules for monks, the arrangement of prayers, the appropriate arrangement of altars, and other things. When Savius, the Bishop of Caesarea, died in the year 370, St. Basil was chosen to succeed him. Under Valens, the external government belonged to the Arians, who held various opinions regarding the divinity of the Son of God, and they were divided into several factions. These dogmatic disputes were concerned with questions about the Holy Spirit. In his books Against Evnomios, St. Basil taught the divinity of the Holy Spirit and his equality with the Father and the Son.
Subsequently, in order to provide a full explanation of Orthodox teaching on this question, St. Basil wrote his book on the Holy Spirit at the request of St. Amphilochios, the Bishop of Iconium. St. Basil's difficulties were made worse by various circumstances. For example, Cappadocia was divided in two under the rearrangement of provincial districts. Then at Antioch a schism occurred following the consecration of a second bishop. St. Basil, however, gave encouragement to the Orthodox, confirmed them in the faith, summoning them to bravery and endurance. The holy bishop wrote numerous letters to the churches, to bishops, to clergy and to individuals. Overcoming the heretics by the weapon of his mouth and by the arrows of his letters, as an untiring champion of orthodoxy, St. Basil challenged the hostilities and intrigues of the Arian heretics all his life. He has been compared to a bee, stinging the church's enemies, yet nourishing his flock with the sweet honey of his teaching. The Emperor Valens mercilessly sending into exile any bishop who displeased him, and having implanted Arianism into other Asia Minor provinces, suddenly appeared in Cappadocia for this very purpose. He sent the prefect Modestos to Saint Basil, and he began to threaten the saint with the confiscation of his property, banishment, beatings, and even the threat of death. Saint Basil said to him, If you take away my possessions, you will not enrich yourself, nor will you make me a pauper. You have no need of my old worn-out clothing, nor of my few books of which the entirety of my wealth is comprised. Exile means nothing to me, since I am bound to no particular place. This place in which I now dwell is not mine, and any place you send me shall be mine. Better to say, every place is God's. Where would I be neither a stranger and sojourner? Who can torture me? I am so weak that the very first blow would render me insensible. Death would be a kindness to me, for it will bring me all the sooner to God, for whom I live and labour, and to whom I hasten. Modestos was stunned by his answer. No one has ever spoken so audaciously to me, he said. Perhaps, the saint replied, that is because you've never spoken to a bishop before. In all else we are meek, the most humble of all. But when it concerns God and people rise up against him, then we, counting everything else as naught, look to him alone. Then fire, sword, wild beasts and iron rods that rend the body serve to fill us with joy rather than fear. Reporting to Valence that Saint sorry that Saint Basil was not to be intimidated, Modestos said, "Emperor, we stand defeated by a leader of the Church." Basil the Great again showed firmness before the emperor and made such a strong impression on him that the emperor dared not give in to the Arians demanding Saint Basil's exile. On the day of Theophany, amidst a multitude of people, Valens entered the church and mixed in with the crowd in order to give the appearance of being in unity with the church. When the singing of psalms began, it was like thunder to his hearing. 
The emperor beheld a sea of people, and in the altar and all around was splendour, in front of all was Saint Basil, who acknowledged neither by gesture nor by glance that anything else was going on in the church. Everything was focused only on God and the altar table and the clergy serving there in awe and reverence. Saint Basil celebrated the church services almost every day. He was particularly concerned about the strict fulfilling of the canons of the church and took care that only worthy individuals should enter into the clergy. At Caesarea, St. Basil built two monasteries, a men's and a woman's, with a church in honour of the forty martyrs whose relics were buried there. Following the example of monks, the saints' clergy, even deacons and priests, lived in extreme poverty to toil and lead chaste and virtuous lives. For his clergy, St. Basil obtained an exemption from taxation. He used all his personal wealth and the income from his church for the benefit of the destitute. In every centre of his diocese he built a poorhouse and at Gessaria a home for wanderers and the homeless. Sickly since his youth, the toil of teaching, his life of abstinence and the concerns and sorrows of pastoral service took their toll on him and he reposed on the 1st of January in the year 379 at the age of only 49. Shortly before his death, the saint blessed St. Gregory the Theologian to accept the see of Constantinople. Following St. Basil's death, the church immediately began to celebrate his memory. St. Amphilochios, Bishop of Iconium, in his eulogy to St. Basil said, It is neither without a reason nor by chance that holy Basil has taken leave from the body and had repose from the world unto God on the day of the circumcision of Jesus, celebrated between the day of the Nativity and the day of the baptism of Christ. Therefore this most blessed one, preaching and praising the nativity and baptism of Christ, extolling spiritual circumcision, himself forsaking the flesh, now ascends to Christ on the sacred day of remembrance of the circumcision of Christ. Therefore let it also be established on this present day annually to honour the memory of St. Basil the Great festively and with solemnity. St. Basil is also called the revealer of heavenly mysteries, a renowned and bright star, and the glory and the beauty of the church. His honourable head is in the great Lavra on Mount Athos. Let's listen now to St. Basil the Great's Apolitikion. Oh, no. 
If you've just joined us, welcome to the Holy Metropolis of New Zealand's Christian Orthodox Radio Programme on Wellington's Access Radio, 106.1 FM. I'm Karlote Konomu and I'd like to remind you that you can listen to this and previous programmes anytime that suits you through the Access Radio website at www.accessradio.org.nz. Click onto the Religion and Spirituality link, then scroll down to the Greek Orthodox Holy Metropolis of New Zealand section. A special notice now, and this is to advise that the feast day of St Basil the Great is, as it is every year, being celebrated at the Monastery of the Holy Archangels in Levin on the 1st of January. All are welcome to attend and we hope to see many of our listeners there. It's now time for question for the priest and Father Meladeos, priest, monk and abbot from the Holy Archangel's Monastery in Levin will speak to us about spiritual knowledge. In the present time there is the widespread conviction that man is destined to ignorance in the areas of religion and spiritual life. While most people would say that knowledge is possible in the realm of natural sciences, they would deny genuine knowledge in the realm of the spirit. They would say that one can know the things of this physical world but cannot know the mysteries of God and God himself. Thus religion becomes a matter of personal choice and individual taste, devoid of any pretension to objective truth and genuine knowledge. However, this is not the teaching of the scriptures, neither of the saints. According to the teaching of Saint Isaac the Syrian, there are two sorts of knowledge, that which precedes faith and that which is born of faith. The first is natural knowledge and involves the discernment of good and evil, the contemplation of the created. The second is spiritual knowledge and is perception of the mysteries, the perception of what is hidden, the contemplation of the uncreated. Knowledge, not only of the uncreated, but knowledge of God, is the essential aim and goal of a human being's life, the purpose of his creation. Man was created to know God, not only to believe in Him and to hope in Him, but to know Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. O righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them." From the Gospel of John. Of course, this does not mean that Christians flee from knowledge which God has given us through created nature, but all natural knowledge gains its meaning only in the all-embracing mystery of Christ's dispensation, since by itself the natural knowledge leads to death and does not provide any exit from the tragedy of the biological mode of existence. Spiritual knowledge is not a matter of gnosiology but primarily of ontology. This means not an intellectual problem but a problem of existence 
In other words, spiritual knowledge for us is not a collection of stored information, which we in the intellectual processes of rational thinking subsequently connect, divide into the categories, and upon which basis we draw conclusions upon the world around us. For Christians, the true knowledge, gnosis, was and has remained being in Christ. Those who realize, actualize the tightest communion within Christ, in other words, within the Church of Christ, gain knowledge of themselves and the world around them through the Holy Spirit. Knowledge, love and wisdom for Christians are of a personal nature and are summarized in the person of Christ the Savior, who is love, knowledge and wisdom. That is why Christians should get to know everything through Christ, to love through Christ, so as to enter into the mystery of wisdom. So was it announced by the incarnate Son of God, through whom the Heavenly Father sent the Holy Spirit to us, to teach us all things. But the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all things that I said to you again from the Gospel of John. The knowledge of God and His truth is the main goal of life. For what meaning would there be for creation, asks Saint Athanasius the Great, 4th century saint, if man should not know God? Knowledge of God, indeed knowledge itself, according to the scriptures and the saints, is not a mere knowledge about the abstract knowledge of information and rational propositions, devoid of living experience. Knowledge is primarily and essentially an existential union, a cleaving together of the spiritual man and the object of his knowledge. Saint Gregory of Nyssa in the 4th century said, The law does not say that it is blessed to know something about God, but rather to possess God in oneself. The possession of God within the mind and heart is the true knowledge of God. Love is that method of knowledge that God handed over to us. The world around us we get to know only if we truly start to love it in Christ, in the mystery of His pre-eternal plan to translate all of creation out of death and out of corruption into the eternal life. Only then in front of us humans can the depth of the mystery be opened, the mystery that surpasses all human partial and selective knowledge. Saint Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, says that, he's, says that he prays fervently that they may have the power to comprehend the width, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, so that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. The subtle crossing point between the words love and knowledge suggests much in the words of the Holy Apostle. He emphasizes this truth when he says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, we know Him and He knows us, and this reveals in an exciting way the nature of knowledge of Christ as a relationship active at both ends. St. John the Chrysostom in an inspiring homily beautifully presents the idea of this knowing in love when he has Christ speak to the believer in the following manner. I am a father for you and a brother, a bridegroom and a home, 
a nurse and a dress, a root and a cornerstone. Whatever you want, I am for you. I do not want you to be in any need. I will serve you, because I came not to be served, but to serve. I am a friend and a member and a head and a brother and a sister and a mother. I am everything for you. Only be in contact, in touch with me. I have been poor for you and a wanderer for you. I have been on the cross and in the tomb for you. High above with the Father I mediate for you. Down here I arrived as an, an ambassador sent by the Father to you. You are everything to me. A brother and a cohere, a friend and a member of my body. What more do you desire? On the simple question, how we can now get in touch with Christ, the simple and short answer we give, at the central point where the Church, the body of Christ, realizes itself, in the Divine Liturgy, in the Holy Eucharist, there where the Holy Mystery offers a splendid example of knowledge as an intimate mutual relationship. We approach Him with all our will, soul, mind and body, he enters into our existence with all His divinity and humanity in an inexpressible yet obvious way, and this constitutes the supreme experience of a relationship of love and the ultimate knowledge of who Christ is. Today's Gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. When the wise men departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had ascertained, from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled, because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus reigned over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. 
He shall be called a Nazarene. I'd now like to invite Father Pavlos onto the program to explain today's Gospel reading to us. Kala Christugena, Kales Seolus. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all of you. Meti nevlogia to the cosmos, kalos sevemiotatos, pumasagapai ke stelni veveos pante sevlogias to. With the blessings of our beloved Metropolitan, just wishing you, of course, much joy at the Christmas time. Simerakuse meto vangelio ke iharamas smichdete me lipi ke veveos avtomas pirazi mas ferni ligokato. Uh, we heard today's gospel, and our joy is mixed with sorrow, which is so sad. We think, oh, can't we keep the joy just a little bit longer? But unfortunately, that's how it is sometimes in life. When we go to the heights of joy and the heights of celebration, and then as soon as the party is over and people go back to their homes, we feel alone and we sometimes feel sad and depressed. And it happens also at the holiday times, and many people are are sad, and, and we wish them not to feel that way. We wish their joy to be great and to be lasting. But it is a human, a natural human thing. But here in the Bible story, we see that the Church acknowledges that sometimes there are sad things, and it reads to us this sad story. And it is a sad story because there are people who, not rejoicing at the birth of the Savior, like the wise Magi, desire to kill our Savior, Herod is out of his mind, really. Exafranon, you know, Herodis. Yeti theli na skotosi ton Christo. In ena mikropedaki, tibori na tu ehikani kako. Tipote veveos, ten ehikani o Christos, tipote kako, ke den ekane potesti zuitu ute ena kako. Ala yeti theli na tu skotosi. Mono aposilia, distikos, adalfimo. Mono aposilia. How is it that this Herod, who has lost his mind, it seems, would want to kill the baby Jesus. Has the baby Jesus done him any wrong? Has he hurt him in any way? Absolutely not, of course. The answer is almost absurd to be asked, but it needs to be asked. How he has he harmed him, he hasn't harmed him in any way. Then what is the threat? It is only his jealousy that makes Jesus a threat to him. He doesn't want anyone to be in the limelight, into the, in the focus that he himself wants to be. He wants to be the, he really wants to be God. That's what we can understand. Yeti theli tosu poli na skotos to Christo, yeti fenete oti theli mono na latrevome avton, o erodis. Ala o anthropos de prebi na latrevi alos anthropos. Then ina marti avto, then namito kaname. Thelme na, ama thelme na latrevome, na latrevome to theo mono. Ke erodis, i avto to kako puekane, then, then he didn't receive, O Herod, the blessings of God, because he had this evil and this, uh, willful desire to oppose God's will. That makes him, unfortunately, a partner with the devil himself. What does he do? In his rage, he seeks to, since he can't identify and locate the Jesus, the Christ, to kill all the children in the area who are two years old or under, with the hopes that somehow he will eliminate Jesus Christ. 
<coughs> θέλει ο Ερώδης, εφόσον δεν μπορεί να βρίσκει τον Χριστό, να σκοτώσει όλα τα παιδιά που είναι δύο χρονών και κάτω, όλα τα αγόρια βεβαίως, για να μπορέσει έτσι να σκοτώσει τον Χριστό. Τι άσχημο πράγμα, τι κακό πράγμα, τι φωτισμένο πράγμα αυτό είναι. How dark is the thoughts of Herod that he would want to take the life of the simple, pure, good, holy, blessed, divine child, Jesus Christ. And after that, and he completes because he has power, he is able to complete his evil uh, desire, and many, many children are died, are killed. According to the church tradition, some 14,000 of them. It's an unbelievable number, really, but that's the tradition of the church, that 14,000 infants were slain. Ο Ερώδης από την οργή του εσκότωσε η παράδοση της Εκκλησίας μας λέει το πόσα. 1.400 παιδιά. 14.000 παιδιά έχει σκοτώσει. That's a very sad number, of course, that he should have injured and hurt. And we think, what a dark person is this Herod. And we, we don't understand how he could have such a uh, way of thinking. But now we have to apply the same kind of a, a thinking to our world today. Who are the innocents today that are martyred, who are killed? For pointless reasons, children who have done nothing wrong, who have hurt no one, who have not raised a fist or raised a hand to hurt anyone. Who are these children? Unfortunately, dear brothers and sisters, even though we are now in the joy of Christmas, I have to broach this topic with you. Those innocent ones are the children who are still in the womb, whom we as a society deem it uh, right to take from this life. This is a horrible sin that is against our society, but not only this society, against every society that practices this horrific practice, which we call abortion. Abortion, as you know, does have medical purposes, and sometimes it is uh, called for, for medical reasons, and even for the psychological well-being of the mother. This can be discussed and debated. But many, many other children are taken for no other reason than that they are inconvenient, that we are not able to care for them. We feel that we are not able to provide for them, and that somehow our lifestyle will be restricted because we have conceived a child. This is not good, brothers and sisters. This is not holy thinking. It is the thinking, the same unfortunate thinking that clouded the mind of Herod. It is a diabolical way of thinking. O Christos dini san evlogia kathe pedi pu geniete pu ginete anthropos stikilia tis mitrostu και βεβαίως κάθε παιδί έχει από το Θεό την ευλογία να, να, να φτάσει μέχρι τη ζωή. Να το πω καλύτερα. Καμιά φορά ο Θεός καλεί το παιδί προτού να γεννήσει και τον παίρνει στον ουρανό. Αυτό είναι άλλο πράγμα. Αλλά όταν ο Θεός αφήνει το παιδί και είναι υγιής, να τον αφήσουμε και εμείς να γεννηθεί και να έχει μια ζωή γιατί ο Θεός το θέλει και να μην είμαστε σαν τον Ηρώδη 
και να προσπαθήσουμε να, 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 να ρίχνουμε εμπόδια στο θέλημα του Θεού. Τι κακό πράγμα είναι αυτό. When we as Christians rejoice at the birth of the Savior Christ, we understand at the birth of Christ that how precious is one little child's life. Now granted that one child is precious because he is the God, the Son of God. But we all love the Feast of Christmas because it reminds us that every child is, is precious and worthy of love. That's why Christmas all the world over is a holiday of children. The whole world celebrates the joy of children. We give to children little gifts and we love to see them smile and to rejoice and to be happy. But why do we then as a society deprive those unborn children of that same joy and that same opportunity to rejoice in life? Why are we so convinced that we that God is not wise enough to provide for all of those children to have, should they be born, that he can't find a way for all of them to be clothed, to be fed, to be happy. Why do we presume to know more than God and say, well, I can't provide for them or society can't provide for them or somehow it's wrong for them to be born? It's better, dear brothers and sisters, let those children to come into this world to breathe and to see the light of day and then to see how God will bless us through them. You know, I'm sure you've heard this told before, but there are uh, many, many stories about people who, by today's standards, could have been aborted. And I believe that one of those persons was Beethoven himself. And the question is often asked, if you had 13 children and your wife was pregnant with the 14th and you knew the child would be born deaf, would you abort this child? And, of course, most people say, yes, we would abort it. It would be the wise thing to do. And then the answer, of course, comes back, well, you just aborted Beethoven. Well, it's a silly kind of a question. I don't even know how accurate it is. But the point is that when we take into our own hands the matter of life and death, we don't know whom we are depriving the earth of, what great blessing might come through that child. That w child might be a great doctor, She might be a great uh, politician. He might be a, a caring nurse. She might uh, be a scientist. He might be a priest. Whatever it is, we don't know. But each person can bring so much to life. And we say, well, there aren't enough resources in the world to provide. And yet, brothers and sisters, there's so much energy, even one tiny atom, the, the, it's enough to power a whole city, perhaps. And God knows that he can teach us how to utilize the things that we have for the benefit of all. And not to be so shallow-minded to think that God won't help us to advance even further than we've already advanced. Who would have thought that the earth could support 7 billion people? Probably no one thought it, ever. But yet, 7 people are living, and I'm sure that the earth could hold another 7 billion, if God so willed. And if... <laughs> If God wills, we can even journey off into space and put colonies there, whatever God wills. But we have to be so careful not to presume to know more than God when it comes to life. So Torah, Pui, Master, Sisior, Tess, Don Riso, Yenon, Inief, Kiria, Masnak, Amin, Sekno, Master, Otikafe, Zoi, Echi, Axia, Echi, Timi, Kenamin, Richtname, Toso, Evkola, τη ζωή που δίνει ο Θεός 
we have to treat now in this beautiful Christmas season, remembering that every human life has value and worth, and that we should treat each of them as with as a gift from God, and with great love and respect. Thank you again for listening, dear brothers. I hope that your holiday season was full of joy, and I hope that it main, remains full of joy. And I hope that you experience a, a newfound relationship with your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And please come to church. Be with us in holy worship so that you can experience the true and deepest joy which comes from worshiping God. Σας ευχαριστώ πάλι που με ακούσατε και πάλι με τις ευχές του Σεβιωτάτου σας χαιρετώ. Σας εύχομαι καλές γιορτές και πολύ αγάπη. With the blessings of His Eminence, again, I greet you and I wish you happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and much joy. Now, as we have done over most of the last few weeks, we will read a little about St. Nectarios, given that this is the 100th anniversary of his repose, and our Metropolitan has asked that we try and speak a little about his life as often as we can. So, let's pick up where we left off from the book St. Nectarios of Aegina, The Saint of Our Century by Sotos Hondropoulos. And today we'll be starting Chapter 5. As the days and weeks passed, more and more people started to find out about what happened to Nectarios. Many felt compassion for him, and most were perplexed. I cannot understand. Both rich and poor wandered out loud. Was the patriarch swayed by plotters just like that, out of the clear blue sky? A multitude of visitors encompassing every age group and social standing came to the chapel of St. Nicholas and to the dormitory of the patriarchal trustee Nectarios. They wanted to see him, to console him, to express their love for him and above all to offer their advice that he try to be patient. Your eminence, how can they have pushed you aside like this, when it is you who organised the Philoptochos group, you who shared and distributed whatever you had to the poor, you who preached to us so understandingly and angelically? Do they have any idea of what they are really doing? Never mind, don't let it worry you, my friends, he answered. As the saying goes, it is a storm and it will subside. Not more than two and one half months had passed since the deacon had brought Nectarios that dreadful letter that two other letters came. Fortunately, the last couple of months had helped Nectarios both to know and to cope with human suffering, for he had met the deleterious arrows of the evil one, the devil, sends to those who want to remain faithful to the Lord until the end of the battle. Without the initial anguish, Nectarios took a deep breath and proceeded to read the first letter. The Metropolitan of Pentapolos, Nectarios Kefaos, who by the decree of May the 3rd, 1890, was relieved from the administration of the Patriarchal Office in Cairo, as well as Patriarchal Representative and Administrator, was allowed if he so wished, to remain in the Patriarch and continue to board there and perform any services he was called upon from Orthodox Christians. However, since then, there has been great need of an administrator and trustee for the Patriarchal Office, and one has been hired. 
It is therefore the belief of this office that the residence of his eminence in Egypt has become extremely superfluous, and thus, by this patriarchal communication, his eminence is asked to immediately remove himself from the patriarchate and to go wherever he chooses. He is hereby given the enclosed patriarchal letter of release as well as the necessary travel expenses of 1,000 francs. He is also notified that all his accounts have been fully paid and that he has received all his salaries up to the time it was necessary and that he has nothing more to pay or to be paid by our patriarchal throne. Signed by Sophronios of Alexandria, in Alexandria on the 17th of July, 1819. The following was the enclosed letter of release. His Holiness hereby gives this letter of release to the previously enlightened Metropolitan of Pentapolis, Mr. Nectarios Kefalas, who, unable to become accustomed to the climate of Egypt, is migrating and is allowed to perform his priestly duties wherever he goes, following, of course, notification and allowance of the local church authority. The present letter of release has been granted as evidence of the patriarchal communication to be used as necessary. Signed, Sophronios of Alexandria, in Alexandria on the 11th of July, 1890. After he had read the letters twice, he was numb. The tears of hurt and humiliation couldn't stop. Whatever was written about the salaries was almost totally inaccurate. Since the day he was ordained Metropolitan, he had never received his full pay, not to mention that what he did receive he gave in full to the poor. Weren't the church authorities aware of this, even though he never mentioned it to them? How could they write such a lie? He dried his eyes, shook his head sadly and stood up. He went over to the crucifix, did the sign of the cross, and meditated upon it silently. Then he said to himself, O oh, Patriarch Sophronios, your most holiness, no matter how much you kill my spirit, I shall always love you. I will never forget that you stood by me as my spiritual father, my benefactor, my supporter, and naturally I shall pray for you as long as I live. It doesn't matter what you have done to me. May your years be long and happy. As for me, whatever the Lord wills. He started praying for the patriarch as he again looked upon the crucifix and through his humble sobs let God know that even though he allowed such hurt to be inflicted upon him that he was still his faithful servant and still trusted him completely knowing that in his infinite wisdom God knew what was best for him. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This was this is from Matthew chapter 5 verse 1. Unfortunately that's all that we can read from this book today, but God willing we'll continue with it next week. 
As we're nearing the end of our time together, we'd like to thank you for listening to the Holy Metropolis of New Zealand's Christian Orthodox radio broadcast on Wellington's Access Radio 106.1 FM, and we hope that you'll join us again next Sunday. We'd like to thank all our fathers for the inspiration and help we get from them, and a special thanks today to Fathers Pavlos and Melatios. We wish all our listeners a blessed new year and many years. And may our beloved Christos and Panagia bless and protect us all. Let's finish off now with a circumcision hymn. Our human form has thou taken on thyself without change. O greatly compassionate Master, though being God by nature, fulfilling the law, thou willingly receivest circumcision in the flesh, that thou mightest in the shadow and roll away the veil of our sinful passions. Glory be to thy goodness unto us, glory to thy compassion, glory, O word, to thine inexpressible condescension. That program was brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding accessmedia.nz.